Well, first of all, it's a pleasure to talk with you now because I had the opportunity of actually talking this theatre because it uh, occurred after I departed. Um, I also must uh, hope that you've enjoyed the seven lectures so far and that your staff has allowed you to see this one. I'm going to assume you've absorbed and understand everything you've heard over the last seven years. I may tell you something just slightly different, but I welcome questions at the end. I've probably got slightly too many slides, but uh, if I have, I'll, I'll drop some out. I think the important point I want to make is I rather like this cover. Uh, since retirement, I've got very involved in all aspects, from the basic food to the more applied and the political aspects of food security, not particularly in the developed world, but in the more developing world. And this, whoops, I rather like this proverb, he who has bread may have troubles, he who lacks it has only one. We've all got bread, quite a lot of bread. The other point this slide makes is it just shows you the change in seasons, viewed from space. And you can see chlorophyll, which is the only molecule you can see from space. And chlorophyll and photosynthesis and green plants are the most important organisms on this earth. Because sun is the only renewable source of energy, and photosynthesis is the only means in which we can turn into polymers and everything we need. The only problem is that we as humans, one species, take about 30% of all the terrestrial photosynthetic productivity. We do this primarily because 32% of the planet's land area for cropland, 12% is cropland, 20% pasture. What level is truly sustainable? And this is something I'm going to be talking about. How much do we need to share with other species maintaining biodiversity? Uh, we tended to ignore them, if you excuse the term, rape the planet. And how can we increase and optimize what we harvest in the future? I'm going to mention agriculture. It's probably the most important event in human history. It's critical to the future of our planet, and it's part of the knowledge-based bioeconomy of the 21st century. It provides our food, our feed, our fuels, and many of our chemicals. And if we turn the clock back about 100 generations, uh, that's about 5,000 years, agriculture, as it was then, was the key event in the establishment of what we call modern civilization. It enabled the establishment of cities, democracies, and the evolution of mankind, which we are now all part of. Indeed, today, the availability of food, water, and energy are likely to be major forces of global conflict. Therefore, the role of agriculture is very much central stage. Don't worry about the Eurozone and the, and the uh, Euro. Think more about agriculture. Decisions we take now will shape our planet in terms of its species composition, its biogeochemistry, and utility to society in the future. We're dependent on cultivated plant species as the software to translate the sun's energy, water, and a few mineral nutrients, a bit of CO2, of course, into food, fiber, and fuels. Now, this is the view a lot of people have of agriculture. Most people, many people, go to the supermarket and think food comes in cans or plastic containers. They've never been to a farm. So we've got a very Eurocentric, idealised view of what agriculture is like. And, you know, Garden of Earthly Delight or Paradise Lost. This was painted in 1565, which was some time ago. This is what a lot of modern agriculture looks like. This is prairie agriculture actually in Brazil. These are very large combine harvesters, uh, much bigger than this room. They're harvesting uh, soybean, and behind they are planting um, corn. 
So you see, agriculture is big, it's prairie, and in this country, it's very efficient, but rather on a much smaller scale. And it's that prairie agriculture which feeds a large proportion of the world. The reality of a large proportion of the growth is that you've got a lot of very small landowners in Africa and many other countries, mainly women. So agriculture is a success story and has kept pace with the increase in population over the centuries, but not for everyone. And I will be coming back to the fact that one of our major challenges nowadays is actually thinking about how we're going to ensure the survival of at least a billion or probably many more billion and take them out of poverty. So today we can feed everyone on the planet thanks to plant breeding and modern agriculture, but now in the future making sure everyone has enough food to eat is about politics as well as science and technology, and I won't go into it, and subsidies. More than one billion people go hungry daily, and about a quarter of a million are in sub-Saharan Africa. About 30,000 people, half of them children, die every day due to hunger and malnutrition. And about 3 billion people are living in absolute poverty on less than $2 per day and are generally deficient of at least one nutrient necessary for maintaining their health, vitamins and so on. They've got real problems with food security. Food security. And a very high proportion, of course, live in rural areas. But this has been at a cost. So we have enough food, theoretically at the moment, but it doesn't get to the right places. Thanks to agriculture, which is a very polluting pastime, to feed and resource 7 billion, and we hit 7 billion at the end of October, according to the UN, we've lost about one-fifth of our topsoil, we've lost about a fifth of our agricultural land, and we've lost about a third of our forests. And you will know better than I do how important the forests are for a whole variety of reasons. The other thing is we've got gross environmental pollution in many parts of the world, including worse in some of the developing world. We've got climate change, which I'll come back to. We've got a major challenge with getting enough water, because we use more than 70% of our water for agriculture. The ocean layer seems to fluctuate. When I was younger, it was a major problem. It doesn't seem to be so much at the moment. We've got massive and unsustainable fossil fuel usage. CO2 is increasing. We'll come back to that. We've obviously got species extinction and biodiversity loss. And in fact, we're probably losing a lot more species now across than we're discovering. The problem of urbanization and increased meat consumption we'll come back to. We've got obesity and starvation. I've just been in America. I thought we and I had problems here. But in America, it's, it's mind-blowing. And there's starvation. And then we've got a whole range of diseases. And I'm talking about diseases of animals and humans. But plants also have diseases, and they're also changing. This is obviously unsustainable, and doing nothing about it is certainly not an option. Not an option in our lifetime, our children's lifetime, our grandchildren's lifetime. You will all remember that when politicians get together at large summits, they normally have goals on climate change and saving fuel and becoming sustainable. They had one uh, at the uh, millennium. And they have something called the Millennium Deep Development Goals, and they were talking about trying to take people out of hunger. So this is what was happened at the time of the Millennium. It was about 850 million, and you see we've now gone up to over a billion who are in absolute poverty and are starving. So we haven't achieved very much. This was what they were aiming for, this curve down here. So it hasn't happened. 
we also had this food spike in food prices, which you may have noticed, but certainly a lot of people did back in 2007-8. So this is the population. I was born in 1942, when there are about 2.5 billion on the planet, or just over 2 billion. There are now 7 billion, 2011, and that's going to go up to, it will take a billion to 9 billion by 2050. The developed countries, of which we are proud to call ourselves one, won't increase much more in population. In fact, the number of people um, being born is only a replacement value, but of course the population is increasing by migration. This increase in population from the current figure of 7 billion up to 9 billion will be occurring mainly in developing and so-called transition countries. These are countries which are trying to get out of being in the developing context. This increase in world population is also associated with a big increase in urbanization. The largest increases in population will occur in very large megacities, 20, 30, 40 million people in Africa and Asia. So India, China, Southeast Asia, and parts of South America. And again, you can see, if you look at uh, Europe, we're the white, that's, our numbers are fairly constant. Latin America is increasing significantly. North America, not a lot. But if you just look at Asia, which is this increase here, and look at Africa, this increase here. Urbanization. More than half the world's population already lives in cities. And I went to Beijing for the first time this year, and it's just amazing, it blows your mind. This will rise to 70%. I spent time with farmers in rural parts of India and China this year, and their major challenge, or one of their major challenges is, and this is people with one or two acres of land, which they work by hand, None of their children want to be farmers. It's even happening in this country. They don't all move into the city so they can get iPhones or fast food or McDonald's. It's a bit scary because they're telling us that they actually are running out of people to work the land. And this, again, is a problem. And now we've got man-made, I use the word man advisedly, man-made global warming and climate change. This shows you what's happening to carbon dioxide over the last 60,000 years. You see, since the Industrial Revolution, it's increasing significantly. Crop productivity is highly vulnerable to variations in the climate, and I'm not sure we've seen anything yet. Models suggest that climate change will have a positive or neutral effect in crop yields in higher altitudes, that's North America, Europe, and so on, but negative effects at low latitudes, and that's where the biggest increases in population occur. The increase in CO2, which is currently about 385 parts per million, which plants have got used to living with, is going to rise to 450. It will raise some yields. It will act as a carbon fertilizer. But lack of water will have a, a significant effect on others. The spectrum of pests and diseases that attack our crop plants is certainly changing and migrating as we speak. Now, people talk about a four degree rise in temperature. That almost certainly is going to happen. It's almost too late to do anything about it. It goes much above that, and God help us. This is associated with, sorry, increase in forest fires, crop yields decrease, reduction of the, the, the rainfall cycle, because most of our agriculture is rain fed. Sea levels could rise very significantly. You've heard 
the talk about glaciers melting. Fisheries will be severely depleted. Drought events twice as frequent. Uh, disappearance of um, permafrost. Decline of ice sheets. Tropical cyclones more intense. It'll be hotter. It'll be colder in other places. The point is there'll be a lot more rather acute, uh, unpredictable changes in climate with dire consequences. So if you look at food security, poverty, and climate change, what I try to do here is indicate um, where the biggest increases in population will occur, and that's where the big figures are. And I'm also trying to show you where the biggest increases or effects of climate change uh, and so on will be. See, you see that these very much coincide. So this is a challenge rather more for them than for us, but I hope to convince in the end it's all our responsibility. So this, you've heard this term, perfect storm, on a number of occasions. The perfect storm that led to the food shortage will be with us in the future. So this is the world population. Consumption by large affluent classes in India, China, Southeast Asia, and South America. If you go to China, my impression is in many parts, it's far more capitalist than we are in America. Certainly the consumption of food has increased, they've taken a lot of people out of poverty. It's the same in India. And again, until I've been to these countries, I didn't realise just what they were like. And this is where the big increases in food population are going to be, and they're going to want to have the promise a Western-style, American-style lifestyle. Again, God help us, I've just been back to America, the price of fuel, energy costs are going up, ammonia and fertilizer, all of which are vitally important for agriculture, modern day intensive agriculture have increased. And if you follow the price of oil, that tends to precede the price of food. People are converting and using so called renewable sources of energy plants, such as corn into biofuels. I doubt in the short term, or perhaps even the long term now, sensible this is in terms of life cycle analysis. And then of course, how often do we hear about droughts and fires, the Russian fires, I go to Australia fairly frequently, severe drought. Texas is under major drought conditions at the moment. You've heard about the Horn of Africa, which I'll mention later on. So this led to this price. So this is what happened in 2007 and 8, and you can see uh, the food price time. It's now back to about the same level. It's falling a bit. But it's all, almost certainly, this was October 2011, I pulled this off the web, but the food price index, from being very stable, is now increased a lot more. And this fluctuation is liable to be with us for a long time, not just because of climate change and extremes of weather, but also because of people who speculate on the price of food and so on. The other thing is that climate change and food sensitivity insecurity can also be a fairly major multiplier and cause of forced migration of economic and environmental and conflict. Now we don't need to go into detail, but I got this from our Ministry of Defence or whatever it's currently called. And it basically shows over the last few years where there's been climate associated events. It also shows where there's been recent conflict, and it's slightly out of date, as you can see. But notice once again, all these circles, all the challenges, all the conflicts are associated with those parts of the world which will be the major sites of increase in population. And the other thing is those populations are always young. They often don't have work. They don't have food. 
and I'm told that once your country has a very high percentage of young men between about 25 and 35, that's where your conflict starts. And if you start looking at the demographics, again, it's quite frightening. So I'm going to give you a, a list of challenges which um, you've all got to solve, or at least your children have got to solve or address. The world population will grow from 7 billion today to 9 billion by 2050. Well, I certainly won't be here, but I've got grandchildren who will be. 50% of the world's population already live in urban areas. It will rise to 70%. The largest increases in population will occur in megacities, they'll be urban in Africa and Asia. We've got all the problems of getting food and water and energy in, all the products of urban life out. Um, increasing affluence in Asia drives demand for meat, cereals, edible oil. Far more than half of our cereals and our soybeans are already fed to animals. It's a very inefficient way of producing calories. A pound of loaf of bread, to get a pound of meat, you need at least eight to ten pounds of cereal and a lot more water. Sorry. Um, one billion people chronically hungry, three billion in poverty. We've got to do something about that. Land available for agriculture will stay constant or decrease. We're running out of land. Decreasing water supplies will limit crop yields generally and rather specifically. I mentioned about climate warming, but it will lead to changes in distribution of severity of plant pests and disease, sea levels, a lot of those parts of the world like Vietnam and Thailand which are close to the sea are suffering from major flooding at the moment. The rice crop in Thailand has been severely compromised because of the recent flooding. We hear about it for short term, what we don't realise is the long term effect. Severe drought, soil quality. The other thing I can mention is that we've been rather used to a, a 2 or 3% increase in staple crop yields, and we've been on 4 or 5 staple crops, wheat, uh, corn, soybean, rice, and maybe one or two others. That year-on-year yield increase is starting badly. This challenge of diversion of resources into growing energy crops for biofuel rather than food crops, that also possibly contributed in a fairly small way to the food price increase. But when you think about the subsidies and the amount of money going into producing corn ethanol in the States, that's quite something. The take-home is that we need to provide, in the next 30 to 40 years, 70 to 100% more food on the same area of land with improved sustainability, which I'll come back to later, fairer distribution and adaptation to climate change. It's quite a big ask. The thing is, current food supplies depend on technology, but it's been amazing. If you think back to 1960, which is when I first went to university, this is the total agricultural production. It's increased dramatically. And it's gone on year and year. It's probably starting to plateau. The amount of land that we used to increase to achieve this has only increased by about 10%. And we've also lost a fair amount of land because of erosion and misuse. So this is dependent on a number of things. Mechanizations from the heavy use of fuels for tractors uh, and, and everything that goes with modern-day agriculture. 70% of the crops, or the major crop yields, are dependent upon, uh, sorry, water is a major source of this. Synthetic fertilizers, another process which takes gas and oil and makes it into nitrogen fertilizer. 
crop protection chemicals, agrochemicals, and farming. Despite the widespread use of agrochemicals, we still lose 40% of all our crops to pests and diseases. And of course, plant breeding has been extremely important, much better quality soil. So 40% of the world's food would not exist without crop protection, hybridization, and various types of enhanced breeding. So agronomic and genetic improvements will continue to work together to sustain improvement in crop yields. And this is just to show you improvement in crop yields since the last war, or the last major war. Um, and look at yields. This is in the US. Average crop yield corn is going, and corn is really king. Uh, GM corn was introduced in 96, but it's had a dramatic effect. A lot of the other crops haven't done quite as well, but they have increased. Some have hardly increased at all because they haven't been bred. GM technologies, I'm going to come back to, has made a significant contribution to corn and to soybean and to cotton. But these year-on-year -year yields are starting to fail, to decrease, particularly in wheat and many others. We're not getting the 1% or 2 or 3%, we're getting far less. And if you look at yields first come in various countries, what you see is, if you look at developed countries, we've increased from 1960 up to about 2005, we've almost tripled, quadrupled, or even more the amount we can produce. So that's the corn, cereals, and soybean per hectare for good crop breeding, but also all the other attributes. Major problem is that if you look at those parts of the world where we need the increase in productivity, where people are starving, the yields per hectare are much, much lower. And so one of the major aims is to try and find ways of increasing yields of the existing crops in those countries. Maximum yield in those countries will have, will have the biggest increase in population still far below those achieved in the developed world. Now one way of doing this is to pump in a lot of nitrogen fertilizer, which costs a lot of money, which farmers can't afford, is to improve irrigation. Many of these countries are mainly rain-fed agriculture. It's also um, a, a number of improving infrastructure and so on, so there are markets. This word sustainability, which we all come across, is the, is the new buzzword. It's defined as meeting the needs of the present while improving the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. And I think we all take this responsibly. I mentioned that agriculture currently consumes 70% of total water, which draws from rivers and aquifers, many of which are overexploited. Global water demand for agriculture could rise by over 30% by 2030 and double by 2050. We are actually running out of water. Of about 11.5 billion hectares of vegetated land on Earth, around a quarter is underground human-induced degradation. We're going to have to find ways of remediating soil and bring it back in productivity. And the other thing is agriculture and forestry directly contribute about a third of global anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions. Agriculture affects climate change. So this is sustainability. So the interesting thing is there are two main competing priorities for agriculture, food security and productivity, which is what farmers report, but on the sustainability. My sister is a small farmer in the West Country, and they mainly say well, quality is important, but it's how many uh, tons per hectare per acre. And at the moment, with few exceptions, farmers get paid 
certainly in the developed world, for quantity, rarely quality, and certainly not for sustainability, for which few and William can afford to pay. This will change. We're all going to have to pay for improving the sustainability of agriculture. We can't let the environment take the burden for much longer, because it won't be there for us. So one of the challenges, which is the second part of my talk, is how we can harness science and modern biotechnology to ensure a sustainable food supply in the future and provide an equitable reward for everyone. Science-based metrics for sustainability of modern intensive farming practice are urgently needed, measuring the carbon footprint per unit you will already be realizing, uh, if you go to the supermarket, that some people are actually putting carbon footprint data. I think Walker's Chris are on the banks and others. The way forward is this term, sustainable intensification. And basically, this means essentially growing, making agriculture more efficient. It's essentially growing twice as much in terms of being on the same footprint with less inputs and less pollution. So we must grow more with less, sustainable intensification. There are very different views about how this could best be achieved. It's defined, as I said, producing more from the same area of land while reducing the negative environmental impacts. Both agriculture and environmental outcomes are preeminent under sustainable intensification. We have to think about both. We must go beyond pointless arguments based on entrenched beliefs or narrative debates about individual technologies. We've got to think, what are the desired outcomes? It's a practical matter, it's not an academic exercise. There's no single perfect solution. I'm not going to tell you of a perfect solution. I'm going to talk about some technologies which are part of the toolkit to address this and how they might be used. It's a journey, it's not a destination. Solutions must work locally for individual pharmacists and community who did not contribute to global warming and climate change. And these people are important. People in sub-Saharan Africa, parts of India, Southeast Asia and South America didn't have the Industrial Revolution at the time we did and contributed to global warming. So there are only two ways of increasing food production. Far more land or produce more acres. But if you farm more land, you extense, you do more extensive agriculture, you challenge biodiversity and forestry and all the good things we need to preserve. Or we can produce more break. We've got to make agriculture more efficient. We've got to make sure that we can grow more food on the same footprint of land we use at the moment while leaving the rest of the earth for those other creatures and for other functions, ecosystem services which we require. So this one, I contend, is not on. And we're already, already just about the limits. So this demand is driven by population growth and landscapes. If you look at world population, 1950, 2.5 billion. Some of you, many of you around then, didn't seem as crowded. 2005, 6.5 billion. 2030, about 8 billion. People per hectare, 1960, we could feed, we have a hectare for two people. We're going to have five people per hectare. So at least one in six, and probably more, is hungry today, and probably a lot more, and we've got to increase food production. 
balancing future demand and supply, this sustainable intensification again, we need a transition to an agriculture which is higher production, intensified, and resilient. And that's the important word. But at the same time, sustainable and low emission. And again, if you look at this, this is total arable land, which is increasing here. It's now plateau. We have to find any more. If we want to have future agriculture to support everyone adequately, we've got to do a number of things. We've got to have a combination of both improved and appropriate technologies. And depending on your point of view, agroecology, organic farming, for those who are able and benefit and can afford to live by, is obviously important in many countries. Integrated pest management. We need to reduce chemical use of energy significantly. We need smarter chemicals and less, um, less use of energy. A lot of modern agriculture allows you to use no-till practices, whereby you can actually plant straight through crops which you've harvested. Precision agriculture will be important. Drip technology, understanding where on very large fields you need to use agrochemicals and fertilizers. We need to conserve genetic diversity. We don't know where some of the genes we might need will come from. We've got to try and get away from stable, tradable crops to identifying so-called orphan crops and specialised crops. I've got biofuel question mark here, such as um, cassava, pigeon peas, sweet potatoes, crops which are vitally important in the developing world, which are almost unheard of here. I'm going to now move to talk about genetic modification by both marker-assisted breeding, which you've heard something about, and GM technology where appropriate. I am not going to tell you that GM solved these problems or any of its technologies to solve the problem. It's not a silver bullet. I personally believe that appropriately regulated, they are safe and will be one of the important tools in the toolbox. One thing we can all do, actually, is we consumers to develop work can also help by cutting down waste and eating less meat. We waste about 40% of all the food that we buy. Those people in developing countries waste far less because they don't have as much to waste. And actually, if you look at what's wasted in developing countries, on the farm is here, transport and processing, food services here. If you look, we, we are home and municipal, this light green, it's about 40%. It's enormous. Think how much you throw away from the bottom of that little plastic box of your freezer in your fridge every week. Think how much you put actually in the little plastic box that they come and collect every week at a great cost. So we've got to incentivize the public and private sector to lose, to use, and to waste far less. So if we can save on waste, we'd immediately we could save everything, we'd save 40%, which would be significant. So the other thing we could do is we could eat less meat. Meat, in terms of what we feed animals, sheep, cows, and so on, is incredibly environmentally and calorie expensive. Most of the developing world doesn't eat a lot of meat, but it's starting to increase. We probably eat far too much meat, and my guess is that we're going to have to cut back on our meat consumption in time, whether we'll choose to or something else. So we've got to increase food literacy. I think people don't consider this sort of thing. 
certainly I'm, I'm quite shocked because I do the cooking and every time we go to the supermarket, how much waste in the packaging I throw in that bin every week, it's really quite scary. Can genetic improvements of crops help feed the world? No single solution will solve this problem, but the new genetic technologies of plant breeding developed during the last few years can help. You will have heard something about this, so I should go fairly quickly. They can increase agricultural efficiency and save people from hunger in a sustainable manner, particularly in African nations where the need is greatest. Something called genomics, microassisted screening, phenotypic analysis, computer modeling, and GM, when required, have greatly accelerated the breeding process. This is a big success story. This is based on basic knowledge, education of people, and investment by governments. Although that level of investment has been rather patchy, certainly doesn't seem to be increasing, and certainly hasn't on the whole been uh, deployed in the direction of those countries that need it. But for example, uh, having just been in China a couple of years ago, they put three million or more into modern-day agriculture research. So we want to build productivity and sustainability into the seed by plant breeding biotechnology. The latest advances can help demands on world farming by rapidly incorporating new traits. And a trait, as you know, is a gene or genes-based uh, attribute which a plant can have conferred upon it by classical breeding or by GM so that it's more effective, more efficient, and it makes agriculture more effective. Uh, as I said, mostly plant modern plant breeding is based on crossing closely related or crops or lines of plants in the same species, crossing them and then selecting. Um, many of the new approaches involve identifying single genes or groups of genes, putting them all together by GM into a single plant to make the crop more resistant to example rigors of climate change, also greatly reduce the time and costing to improve research, neglected local crop varieties, the so-called awful crops I was talking about, uh, that are important in emerging economies. The problem and challenges now lie in the implementation of these impressive scientific advances which we have heard about, where they're desperately needed currently for the future. And this is the very issue that has not specifically received adequate attention or support so far and needs far more. So classical plant breeding has been very good. We're starting to understand the genes, the genetics, which underlie such things as more effective water use, drought tolerance, increased yield, time to maturity, shortening the growing season, growth on marginal lands, salinity, metal toxicity, more effective utilization of fertilizers, increased tolerance to temperature stress, increased flooding tolerance, coping with weeds, Avoidance of losses through pests, improved nutritional quality, sustainable production of low carbon footprint. Now, there isn't a gene for these. These are very complex traits, and on the whole, there are a large number of genes, and the relationship and the number of these genes that you need to select for by conventional plant breeding or introduced by UTM will be uh, similar and rather different. I presume you know all about conventional plant breeding because you've been lectured about it. Um, during conventional breeding, genes are always mixed and newly sorted. They often result in non-desired traits of elite crop varieties, 
the desired improvement is obtained by many years of selection in the field and very clever uh, readers. Gene technology involves taking a single gene, or a favorite gene, or a group of genes, which you sequence to understand what the proteins it goes and what characteristics it confers to the plants. Again, you introduce that single gene into your variety, your best available variety, and then again, you go through many years of testing, evaluation, safety, is it doing the right job? Is it doing safely, both in terms of health and environment? And then there's very extensive regulation applied to these crops, which is not applied to conventional crops. So it's been very successful, but those of you who know what poetry are like, I don't they happen nowadays. That's rather what you do when you mix 30,000 genes. And in a, the higher plant, the average gene number is 30,000. It's about the same as humans. And that combination of genes gives you a wide array of plants that you see in the environment. And many of those are shared in common with us. So basically, you go from the gene through to the trait. The secret is identifying what that or those genes are. So, how do you find the genes? I won't go into detail, you may have had some of this. You use a whole variety of, te uh, of technologies. And what you're breeding for or trying to identify genes for are to reduce stresses. That's either stresses conferred by living organisms or stresses conferred by changes in availability of water or nutrition or heat or cold or whatever. And these are some of the major targets that the modern plant breeder is looking for. Improved health and nutrition is also extremely important and that's something which a number of people are striving to improve at the moment. Improved plant performance, that's changing the architecture of the plant so that you create plants which produce more of that which you want to harvest, a larger ear of corn, a larger tuber, and put less into the structure. So all these sort of things. New industries, people are already uh, clinically testing all vaccines. People, as you well know, are modifying plants to make or improve the crops potentially produce biofuels. Plants pretty soon are going to be the only organisms which can use, or are the only organisms that can use the sun to make polymers. And these polymers are going to have to replace those polymers we currently get from stored hydrocarbons in the form of gas or oil, because that will run out in time. So this is the sort of technology. It's called omics. You can sequence genomes very rapidly. You can sequence a genome for about $1,000 or $2,000. And we have sequences of many plants at the moment, rice, pigeon bee, arabidopsis, uh, uh, and many others. So pretty soon we'll know the gene content of all the major crop plants. We won't know what all those genes do, but we will have start to understand that. We can also see when these genes are switched on and switched off. And I meant to bring one of these chips with me tonight, but I left them on my desk. We can look in a way in which genes affect metabolism, the chemistry of the plant. We can see how the proteins which carry out the chemistry vary in different parts of plants at different times, in high and low yield plants. And we can see how genes affect the structure of the economy of the plant. And then we can do this through the whole life cycle. So we can start understanding the molecular and genetic basis of those traits that we would find desirable in both conventionally rare plant or a GM rare plant. 
what we need is because we've got some information, you need something called bioinformatics, and you need far cleverer people to do this. Because in the end, you can get too much information. You've got to sort of excuse the mixed metaphors the wheat from the chaff. Two routes for delivery of new traits and products both depend on identifying genes and what they do. One is by so-called marker-assisted breeding, which is rather like conventional breeding, but you have the benefit of not having to grow a plant to maturity to see if the gene that you uh, are selecting for is present and is working where you want it to, but it still takes 10 or 12 or 15 years. Or you can use the GM approach, which means taking a gene or single genes, transforming it into a plant, and then again selecting by more precise methods those plants which have your trait of interest. And again, that's got to go through a variety of development field testing and very expensive regulatory approvals, which are not present here. So it's a long process, but it's a more exact process. You've probably heard that the first generation of GM uh, traits were designed to complement the use of agrochemicals and provide better pest and weed control. And it involves the transfer of a single gene from a bacteria, one that converts initially resistance to herbicide, or brander, or glyphosate, and the other to specific classes of boring insect pests. Only boring in the sense that they bore into the plant and um, are not treatable with insecticides. It's been very effective in cotton. These cotton plants, one is infected with the bollworm. This one uh, is, they're both infected, but this one is GM resistant, and this one isn't. And this is something that's been sprayed with glyphosate, which kills all the weeds, because it's, uh, and so on. You, you've seen these before, I'm sure. So the genetically modified crops in agriculture today, quite a range of crops, mainly corn, mainly cotton, mainly soybean, to a lesser extent, canola, oilseed grape, sugar beet, and virus papaya. These are the major crop plants grown in the world, which are traded. Initially, they just made them insect resistant, or they made them uh, resistant to uh, weed killers. But in fact, they're now stacking these genes, and pretty soon we'll have up to 12 track stacked traits. They're being introduced into a whole other range of crops, including rice. And even though they don't admit it, uh, transgenic rice, with a lot of these genes that have been growing very extensively in China and other parts of the world. If you go to the US, which pioneered uh, not so much the technology, but the deployment and use of the technology, GM maize, or corn, 86% of total production in the US in 2010 was GM. If you look at sugar beet, 95% of total production. Canola, 90%. Soybean, 93 Cotton, 88%. So if you've been to America and you've eaten anything, because 70% of all processed food comes from corn and soybean, you would have eaten GM crops. First introduced in 96, um, no health or environmental benefits of those that should be approved for commercial use by the FDA and others. Um, has been shown. This is the increase in GM technology, millions of hectares um, from when it was introduced in 96. So this is the total hectares in the world, this is the developed nations here in blue, and this is developing. They're about the neck there. Those countries in green grow GM crops, those in yellow don't. 
So something like 15 million farms, of which about 90% are small-scale farms with a few hectares, use this technology currently in 29 countries. They've planted 148 million hectares, that's 365 million acres in 2010, a decrease of about 10% per year. There are a lot of GM crops waiting in the wing, so to speak, waiting for approval, and I expect that this will go on increasing. So the, okay, the initial trades would mainly benefit to the agricultural company and to the farmers. It meant lower inputs, lower use of mechanization, and it gave them the benefits. It had financial benefits to them, the essentially improved yield. So that's the first generation. And this is corn yields per bushel. So you see, after it was introduced, the rate of increase started to increase even more. Insect resistant, herbicide resistance. This is percentage of acres um, planted to the trait, and it's now up to around about 90% up here. Sorry. Oh, right. The second generation, they started to combine resistances to insects and to herbicides in sacking. You see this increase, increase yield again. The next generation, people working on our outputs, which is what I'm going to end on. So, agronomic, first generation, second generation, disease resistance. People have genetically modified corn, so it's more effective than ethanol. They're trying to improve the feed quality, omega 3 and others for animals and protein content. The more advanced ones are the ones I'm going to be talking about. There have been quite a lot of environmental sustainability benefits of first generation crops. It's allowed no till agriculture. You can actually kill the weeds, harvest your crop, and then plant seeds straight in so you don't need to plough, you don't degrade the soil, you don't have as many tractor plants. Labour saving. Labour is expensive. Herbicide savings. Actually, glyphosate is one of the most benign herbicides, and they found that they don't have to do the same number of sprays. Smaller tractors, they can plant plants closer together, they can increase yields. It's helped reduce soil erosion, kept carbon and nutrients in the soil because you save carbon there, increased bird life. Uh, increased beneficial insects because this insecticide that is in gene produced is very specific. Increased organic matter, improved water usage. So it's a simple trait. Single gene fixes have brought huge benefits, including the more cost effective use of many more benign chemicals. This is the start of the move from chemical solutions where you spray large quantities of chemical derived from oil and fuels and so on and replace it with nature's existing genetic biological approaches to solving some of the problems associated with modern-day agriculture. This is a, a, a rather nice picture which shows you most of the major crops grown in the world. It's not a lot. It's very few, in fact. One of the problems is that this marker-assisted breeding gene technology is primarily being used to produce food improved food production, major rural crops such as corn, soybean, cotton, canola and rice. They have not been adapted to the orphan crops, but to the staple diet in many countries. Sorghum, carrot, sweet potato, groundnut, cassava. Those of you that heard the news last week will be aware that 
cassava, which provides about 30% of the calories in sub-Saharan Africa to big root problems. I don't know if that's, is that cassava? Yes, I think it is. Um, has been struck, has struck many times by a virus which affects tumors and others which affect the leaves, and it's having dramatic effects. GM cassava is available, but it hasn't yet been deployed. But the trouble is, people aren't going to invest. The large private companies are not going to invest in improving a crop for which they're not going to make a return on their investment. And that suggests that we've got to do a lot more public good, not really. So I'm talking about the seeds of the future. And what we've got to do is to actually concentrate on plants which will be of benefit to countries such as Sub-Saharan Africa and appropriately regulate them and make sure that they actually work. So we've got to find ways of funding and building capacity in countries such as Africa and other parts of Southeast Asia which historically have not invested in this technology by a variety of means. So building productivity and sustainability in the seed, what's under development? Well, we need to counter existing and new pests and disease outbreaks, and I mentioned that the changes in the climate leads to changing quite dramatically. We need to increase water and nitrogen use efficiency, more crop per drop. We need to increase drought and flooding tolerance, increase nutrient fertilizer uptake efficiency, and improve nutritive value. Now, very quickly, um, work in a variety of labs around the world, primarily Jonathan Jones's lab at the Sainsbury Lab at the John Innes Centre, is currently doing one of only I think one or two field trials in the country on trying to make naturally occurring resistance genes for wild type potato, introduce them into uh, the potato so they're resistant to phytophthora infestans, the potato leaf late light, which caused the Irish famine. It's becoming a big threat. You see, Gramlis triticola wheat stem rust fungus has developed into a highly aggressive form, little natural resistance. It's a major problem in a number of countries in Africa and it's starting to spread. People are starting to use GM approaches and conventional approaches to, to attacking these challenges. The worst drought in 60 years is hitting the Horn of Africa and other parts of Sub-Saharan Africa as we speak. And again, I've tried to indicate in the harder colours, the, the reds and the yellows, where the major problems associated with water stresses, water scarcity. And you see that's again in just those countries that we would hope to improve the food. So this is the headlights from all of Africa. And I was speaking on Saturday morning in the same room, right next to someone called Mary Robinson, who's now spending a lot of time on what she calls climate justice in Africa, particularly in the whole of Africa, to make sure that we not only pay for, but we start ameliorating the problems in Africa and elsewhere in the world caused by climate change. Drought tolerance, yields are dramatically affected. You can lose all your yield or a large significant part of your yield if your plant gets stressed at any critical time during plant development. People have identified groups of genes which maybe help you make plant more tolerant, not necessarily resistant, but more tolerant to drought stress, key changes to the stages to development. And it's likely, um, these are being field trialed as we speak, but they will be commercially available within the next two to three years. But again, primarily for things like corn and soybean and others in the so-called developed world. Too much flooding. 
this was some work of a former graduate student of mine called Julia Bayless Perez, who's in Riverside. She and others identified genes called subgenes which convert resistance to flooding. And believe it or believe it not, rice likes to be flooded for part of its lifetime, but if it floods for any more, you lose rice. And the trouble is, the problems we've got in Thailand at the moment is that flooding is stopping the growth of rice. Using both conventional breeding and GM approaches, they, these are plants called Sandra, these are the IR42, these are lines of rice which are not resistant to flooding, you see they don't grow. But if you use conventional or GM approaches, by introducing a couple of genes, submerge them for 17 days, you see these, which are growing rather well, are resistant to flooding. So this is a big move forward. Again, not commercially, but a bean field tested. And finally, I want to talk about the link between diet and health. We in the developed, in the developed world, the rich, we suffer from overweight, high cholesterol, and we've got millions of death due to overnutrition. In the developing world, the poor, they are due to undernutrition, not just calories. Vitamin A deficiency, zinc, iron, low fruit and vegetable intake. They can't have fiber, they let alone one a day. There are a number of approaches to improving um, or creating biofortified crops. These are currently being tested in a number of parts of the world, but again, look at where the deficiencies occur. Iron deficiency, vitamin A, iron D. Again, in those parts of the world where the biggest increases in population, where starvation is worse and poverty is the greatest. A lot of diseases associated with vitamin A and foodborne diseases in children and adults. Milled rice, the weed, has no beta carotene pro vitamin A. The only way you can get more vitamin A is three green vegetables, which people in uh, camps in all of Africa get access to. They get rice or maybe corn, and that's it. About three quarters of a million children die every year because they're vitamin A. I think how many that has been in the last 60 minutes. 350,000 children go blind. More than 90 million children in Southeast Asia suffer from vitamin A deficiency more than any other in the region. By simple genetic engineering, introducing two genes into rice, golden rice is being produced by Ingo Patricus. I had golden rice to bring with me. I left it on my desk and saw a big bag. The man that did this, he made it with Tyler Zingas, an old friend of mine, but he and Peter Bayer developed the technology. They took two genes, uh, one from, well, initially from daffodil, but then from maize, called phytoene synthase, another one from a common soil born bacterium. The introduction, introduction of these two genes and the switching on of these genes in rice uh, grains produce global rice. So it represents the first example of a biofortified state crop made possible by the application of common DNA technology. Conventional breeding approaches not possible. GM is the only answer. People are working on improving a number of vitamins in crops such as rice and also iron and also um, zinc and other things. So this was what I think made it the way forward. It was a public-private partnership. In 2000, Syngenta, who developed the technology, gave them for free to England, Patricus and Peter. Uh, there, by a whole number of other approaches, they have spent the last 12 years producing golden rice. They actually had it produced in India, for varieties, almost 10 years ago. And this is the one which is traded. 
They've done field testing, they've looked at the target varieties and got into this, they've introduced it, transferred it by conventional breeding in to those rice which grow best in the part for where they want to grow. Uh, they've done all the regulatory hurdles, but for a whole variety of reasons, it's still not in the commercial sector. It's going to be given away in uh, the Philippines and others, hopefully in 2012, 2013, and they've shown that one helping a day has enough beta character uh, pro-vitamin A to confer or uh, address vitamin A deficiency. So what are the challenges for agriculture? They've got to deliver more production productivity, more ecosystem services, more income for more people with greater equity. They've got to give people a great diversity of choice, not just the safer crops. We've got to do all this on less water, less land, less energy, and less environmental damages. Key messages I want to get across is that global food nutrition security is under immense pressure. I think it's number one in the world at the moment. Technology has the fast potential to meet not only global demands for food and nutrition, but also address emerging issues of sustainable energy and environment. The cost of bringing GM technology to market continues to escalate. It's about $135 million for a single genetic GM event, takes 12 to 15 years. Only the private sector, the Monsantos, the Syngentas, the Dows, the players of this world, can afford it. Public good not really either can or will. Genetics and genetic knowledge is expanding the paradigm of crop nutrition and pest protection to include stress alleviation with biotic and abiotic, land and natural source use efficiency, consistency and quality. What we need, or I believe we need, is a science-based, transparent, globally harmonized regulatory trade policy for realizing this potential. I, I perhaps won't go into too much detail, but we've got to urgently think about how we redesign the global food system. Food needs to rise right up the political agenda to achieve this. We keep promising to cut back global warming and CO2 emissions. There's something called Rio Plus 20 happening next year in Rio de Janeiro, which is going to look at improving food availability. But people promise they don't deliver. No action, doing nothing, no change is not an option. If the food system fails to deliver against these challenges, the implications will be far beyond hunger. They'll lead to social tensions, conflict, economic and environmental migration. It will crucially affect water and energy, but is also vital for wide development. And what happens in the food system will crucially affect climate change, mitigation, biodiversity loss, and ecosystem services. And this will affect all of us, not just those in lower income, starving countries. Whilst the change is vital in the food system, you cannot get the food system right just by politics and decisions within the food systems. It's interconnected with everything else on our agenda. We can't consider it in isolation. And I think we've got far more likelihood of conflict because of water availability or food availability in the form of any other countries. We must encourage a much more participatory multi-stakeholder approach towards certain priorities for food security and nutrition prices already upon us. Just giving food aid destroys people's agriculture. It's all right for acute, quick fixes, but in the longer term, we've got to give farmers 
in these countries where there's chronic food shortage, the ability to grow their own food and then sell something. We spend, well, food is so cheap here, we spend 10 or 12% of our own food. In many of these developing countries, they spend anywhere between 80 to 120%. And if they don't have 120%, it doesn't really help. We've got to use political wisdom. We've got to look at all the ministries, not just death in this country. Radical ways in which the Chinese way science is done on an international basis, the way in which biosafety regulations are implemented, and a new spirit of cooperation is required if the benefits of science are to reach those who need the most. I think we've got to try and improve the relationship between public good farm breeding paid for by donations and by people like you taxes, and we've got to establish private public partnerships because these private companies are very skilled and very sophisticated, and many of them actually do donate along with a number of major foundations such as Gates to improving food security. Final thought. We in the developed world shrink and share. We're living way beyond our needs. It's been calculated that we need about 1.5 pounds to sustain the 6 or 7 billion on there at the moment. Whenever I go to Australia, I go to China or to India, the corporation to emulate the Western economic model, they've been promised that they can have the standard of living with the Americans and the Europeans if they work hard. It's defined success as consumption-driven economic growth. I'm not sure it's sustainable. How can we live on a constrained planet now that billions of nations are being told to consumers to waste us? We can't deprive them of the opportunity. I think the result would be catastrophic, yet this is what they are told to aspire to. As the issue rises and expectations increase, the two billion nations now at the margins of, cons- of the consumption economy will radically transform global demand and supply, not only for non-renewable commodities such as oil and coal, but also for renewables such as food and a strain on water land. Our current model of consumption and economic growth thrives on underpricing ecological, environmental and social costs. I've been telling my students, I've lectured on this topic, or made a much more extended form, ever since uh, the mid-90s. We're all going to have to shrink and share. Our children will have to accept that all we aspire to and work for, particularly those who've grown up since the war, may no longer be achievable for all of us. Otherwise, they're going to be problems. We've all, oh, sorry. So I think that's my last slide. Um, I'm very worried that for a whole variety of reasons, NGOs, who in many respects we might agree with, are denying the opportunity of many people in sub-Saharan Africa and other countries to evaluate modern plant breeding and GM technologies appropriately regulated to see if they can make a contribution. And they don't come up with an alternative, because business as usual is not an option. We should be aware of cultural realism. So thank you for listening. I hope I give you some food.